You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask, Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com as well. Uh, But I really encourage you to check them out, especially if if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. If you're old enough to remember uh, even the history of the 1960s in America, you're old enough to know uh, that there was a lot of stuff that that went on then that looking back seems just absolutely inexplicable. Uh, people were killed merely for uh, trying to gain the right of other people to vote or uh, more, I guess more directly trying to register them to exercise a right that they'd already been guaranteed, uh, but been pressured by either poll taxes or literacy tests or uh, random tests that were impossible to answer uh, by people at polling places and registration places uh, that disallowed them, that, that literally disenfranchised them uh, from exercising the right that they had uh, under the law. Uh, so especially like in the 1960s in Mississippi, uh, we've ha- heard for years the uh, the story of Medgar Evers being murdered and uh, the ones memorialized in uh, Mis- uh, Mississippi burning, uh, the Mississippi Three, um, the uh, Vernon Damer, 
others uh, killed in Mississippi by the Klan or by actions related to the Sovereignty Commission or stuff like that. And they're not the only ones, but they come to mind immediately. Uh, and they are the subjects of um, conversation with my guest today, Jerry Mitchell. Jerry's a legendary reporter uh, out of uh, the Jackson area up until last year when he uh, started a new venture that you'll hear about today. Um, but it's just really cool to have a guy who uh, who lived uh, researching and eventually was used to bring people to justice who had escaped justice for years and years, either because they weren't prosecuted at all or they were given deals on smaller, uh, lesser crimes, uh, or the, the context of the times was such that anyone who would have tried them, uh, any jury that they would have potentially sat before, uh, supported the cause, uh, supported what they were doing. It was their very way of life, that, that life that was being protected. And uh, so killing a few people here and there didn't mean anything. In fact, the, uh, where the, the Mississippi burning three men were buried was in an earthen dam, and the owner of that dam uh, made a comment that was recorded uh, that he, the dam was big enough to bury plenty of people in it. So they didn't mind however many they felt like they needed to kill uh, in order to protect what they wanted to have and uh, deny other people the opportunity to have what they should have. Uh, and they really didn't like people coming down and trying to help the the downtrodden and the misfortunate gain the same rights and the same kind of a, um, uh, ability to live as the majority had at the time. So um, my interview today is with uh, Jerry Mitchell, an actual living, breathing legend. And if you listen to this podcast very much, you know that I don't take those kinds of word li- words lightly. But my guest today is Jerry Mitchell, uh, investigative reporter formerly for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, for a long time, three decades. Yeah. Uh, winner of more than 30 national awards, including the MacArthur Genius Grant, George Polk Award, Columbia's John Chancellor Award, and the Sidney Hillman Prize. You are a Pulitzer Prize finalist. What was that? Was that for the serial killer story? No, I, I I heard I was in the top ten for that, but no, I didn't. I was I, I was final for the Edgar Killing stuff, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay, awesome. Uh, but in 2019, you left the Clarion Ledger and founded the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, raising up a new generation of investigative reporters. Jerry Mitchell, welcome to Uncommentary. Good to be with you, Marty. Uh, so your latest book is uh, Race Against Time. Is this your first? Is this your only book? It is. It is my only book. So it took me, uh, between living it and writing it, it took me 31 years. So hopefully, I don't know if I've got a second book in me or not. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) After after 20 million reporting words, you wrote a book. Yeah, I wrote a book. Uh, So the day that this podcast drops, this book is scheduled to drop. uh, Race Against Time, a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. And I was really excited to see that this book was coming out. Uh, I've been following you for a while, reading your stuff for a while, and knew of your involvement um, in some of these cases. But some were a surprise to me, uh, to be honest. Uh, but if I remember sure. correctly, you did not like go to college to major in uh, civil rights, cold cases, investigative journalism. How in the world no. did all, how did all that come all. about? Uh, well, uh, you know... What can I say? God had other plans, I guess. Uh, no, I, I, in high school and college, uh, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I, I, you know, I kind of really fell into writing, loved writing, wanted to 
be a writer and, and, and love newspapers. Uh, my mom had me reading three newspapers by the time I was seven years old. Wow. So I didn't really have much choice, I guess. Uh, <laughs> she was very much a, and still is a, a news hound. And uh, so I fell into it, really had more ideas of, you know, kind of creative type writing, not not journalistic type writing in my mind. But journalism would pay the bills, I was thinking. And I got into journalism and discovered I had far more talent for reporting than I did for writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating. But, but what kind of started my journey um, – I got interested in investigative reporting before I got to the clearing laser, but, uh, but what got me started on these cases was I went to see a movie, mm-hmm. which was Mississippi burning. Mm-hmm. And it was in January of 1989. I saw the two FBI agents who investigated the case and a journalist who covered the case. And so I was just stunned. I mean, I was angry to be honest because they were telling me about these, you know, like 20-something Klansmen who were involved in killing these three young men, Cheney, Dick, and Turner, and nobody had been prosecuted for murder. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around that. Mm. I was like, what? The state didn't prosecute for murder, you know? Um, and so I, I, that really kind of began my journey into these cases. I, I, I just I, I couldn't believe it. And so I just kind of kept digging and kept pursuing it. So when you uh, so I'm assuming that you and the FBI agents didn't like, uh, you know, get on Skype and decide to go to see a movie together in Mississippi. You they came to see it and you, no, you happened to all. be there and, and found out they were there. Yeah, and, the journalist, the journalist who was there invited them. I, I, I had I did not invite them. They uh, the journalist who was there invited the FBI agents. He's an older man. His name's Bill Meyer. And uh, he's uh, in fact, all three of the men are deceased now, but, um, but yeah, they, they, Bill invited me, uh, or, you know, he didn't invite me. I already had tickets to it, but I, I didn't, you know, I, I was in the dark. I mean, yeah. Bill invited them to the, to the film. So, um, so you begin your investigation of this, uh, in what way? I mean, you, you don't, I guess you don't just go down to the courthouse well, and say, anybody know anything there, about this? Yeah. Well, I started, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you, I started kind of seeing what evidence still existed. I, and come to find out there was an, you know, the transcript still, still existed, but then I found out I, you know, someone had it, but I couldn't get it. And, it's one of those kind of one things. That, and then along the way, uh, the second thing that happened that kind of triggered this journey was I got interested in something called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. Mm-hmm. And and the reason I get interested in it, I, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a billion <laughs> times worse. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a state segregationist spy agency that existed from 1956 until 1977 was officially abolished by the Mississippi legislature. Um, and basically all the records, all the spy files sealed for 50 years. Wow. So when I found that out, I was like, there's got to be something in there. I mean, you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, there's, you know, you don't, you know, you don't seal something for 50 years until, unless you're trying to protect somebody. 
<laughs> so I began to develop sources, and those sources leaked me the files. And what they show is at the same time, the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. Lebeckler for the murder of Meg Revers, this other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission, was secretly assisting the defense trying to get Beckler acquitted. Wow. And nobody knew that. And um, so my story ran October the 1st at 89. And then I always compared to kind of like a snowball at the top of a very tall mountain. You know, it's just like it, it began rolling down the hill and, and, and it got bigger and bigger. And uh, by the end of, there was kind of a whole series of things. Merle Evers asked for the case, the, the widow of Meg Evers asked for the case to be prosecuted, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end of that month, the district attorney's office said they would, uh, they would look into the case. So, um, and that, that kind of, that story you know, was actually covered in a different movie, Ghost of Mississippi, right? It was. It was, yes. Ghost of Mississippi is uh, is a story of that reopening. It's kind of told from the uh, prosecutor's perspective, yeah. the, the, the person, who, Bobby DeWater, who prosecuted the case. It's kind of his story. Yeah. So let's take about a half step back. Um, Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner uh, had come right. down from uh, the North during Freedom Summer. Is that right? Yeah, so Mickey Schroeder was already, he and his wife Rita came to Mississippi actually in January of 64. They were like kind of the advanced staff okay. preparing for Freedom Summer and all those kinds of things. So Andy's the one who came from New York City. Um, he was going to Queens College, heard about it. So he, like other college students, came and were part of that Freedom Summer and trained in Ohio, and then they came back to Mississippi, went to investigate uh, a church where Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney had been before and got them to agree to open a freedom school. And uh, the church got burned to the ground and the members beaten. And um, they'd heard they had civil rights activists there. And so that's what happened. And then, of course, they felt responsible, Mickey Schwerner and, and I know Rita Schroeder's talked to me about that. And, mm. and so anyway, they went back and Andy came with them and went to investigate. And then of course it was all a ruse. The, the deputy arrests them and jails them. And basically that night releases them into the hands of waiting Klansmen who basically took them out and, and killed them. And, um, yeah. And so at the end, buried their bodies 15 feet down, uh, in an earthen dam and they weren't found for 44 days. Wow. If someone hadn't talked, they, they would not, those bodies would have never been found. So there was a deputy sheriff involved in, in that murder uh, or those murders. Oh yeah. There was more than one law enforcement. It was more than one law enforcement official allegedly involved in, in that the sheriff uh, he always denied he had any part in it, but uh, I can't imagine the sheriff not being a part of that, yeah. you know, something happening in his county. Um, and that was his chief deputy. And then um, he had to, like, the local law enforcement. And they had been harassing. There was kind of a whole, this was not an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. They kind of been harassing African-American men, pulling them over, arresting them, harassing them. Um beating them for some time in, in Philadelphia, Mississippi before this happened. So, um, that one is pretty, those two, actually the, the murder of Medgar Evers by Byron Diggle Beckwith 
uh, and yes. the the murder of the three civil rights activists that were memorialized in later in the Mississippi Burning movie, but well known at the time for because of the disappearance. Um, yes, those were I, I guess in what well, I guess what we would call pop culture. There's a lot of knowledge of them. They're probably as high profile. Of there's those, some, yeah. People yeah. people undoubtedly have heard of those cases or read about those cases. I'm sure. But one that you dealt with was a man named Vernon Damer, who I, I was, I've tried right. to rack my brain to, to figure out if that is a name that I was familiar with, and I still am not sure if I was familiar with it before reading your book. Uh, but another situation, African-American man who um, was active. Yeah, he, was, and, he was active in voting rights. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what, so what happened with that story? Well, let me tell a little bit about him, since most people don't know about him. That's awesome. He basically uh, was dedicated to voting rights, and the Klan didn't like that. Attacked him and his family. He'd been involved in this struggle for decades, okay, a couple of decades. Attacked by the he and his family were attacked in the middle of the night, January 10, 1966. Uh, the Klan firebombed their house began firing their guns into the house. Uh, Brennan Damer woke up, grabbed his shotgun, ran from the house, began firing back at the Klansman so his family could escape safely out a back window. Unfortunately, the flames of the fire seared his lungs, and he died later that day. A, a few weeks later in the mail came his voter registration card. Wow. He had fought his whole life for the right of all Americans to be able to vote, but never been able to cast a ballot himself. And uh, Bernard Damer is a, a name I would hope all Americans would come to know. Right. Um, he, he incredibly courageous man. He was a, a, biz, a very successful businessman, entrepreneur, um, and, and incredible character. I mean, he was... Uh, I mean, you want him as a neighbor yeah. and a friend, yeah. Uh, that kind of guy. Just that, and I know the family well. It's uh, an incredible family, so I, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, but nobody was charged uh, as a result of his death. How, how did? Well, I mean, there were people that went. To, there were a few people that went to trial and were convicted. Just a few. And the ones who were convicted, it was a little bit of a joke. Mm. I mean, like they, um, the governor pardoned them or commuted their sentence or released them on work release. Uh, those kind of things okay. is what happened. So when you began to look into it, you found uh, something significant enough that it got people's attention and uh, they began to look at it again. Was it that nobody was charged for murder or that nobody hit? What was the significance that allowed you to do further well, investigation? Well, I, I, I wrote about, you know, the family asked, you know, the district attorney to look at the case and, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, he was acted all interested. And then over time he got cold feet. Mm hmm. And then uh, another DA came in, sort of like starting all over again. And about this time, I went up, uh, was getting my, I got a fellowship to Ohio State to get my master's in journalism. So I was literally in Ohio when I got a phone call. And it was this guy, his name is Bob Stringer, but he wouldn't tell me at the time. 
But uh, he told me he had information on the Vernon Damer case and wanted to meet with me in person. So I flew back to Mississippi, met with him, and there were a couple sons of Vernon Damer. And we met in this little motel room down the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And he proceeds to tell the story about how that he was a recovering gambling addict. Mm. This is kind of part of the story. And one of the 12 steps is to make amends for the bad stuff he's done in the past. Well, he worked for Sam Bowers, who's the head of the White Knights of the KKK in Mississippi, which was the most violent, you know, clan organization in the United States responsible for at least 10 killings that we know of. Wow. And so, um, he said that and, and, uh, told, you know, basically, uh, told us about working for Bowers. He was young at the time. He helped Bowers type up the Klan propaganda and pass it out. And he overheard Sam Bowers give the orders to kill Vernon Damer. Mm. And so he came forward. The case kind of got reopened in earnest. And then I found out um, the the guy who'd been the key witness back in the 1960s, you know, with, with these key trials, was a guy named Billy Roy Pitts. He was involved in the killing of Vernon Damer, dropped his gun, got caught, pleaded guilty to murder, got a life sentence for that, pleaded guilty to federal charges and got five years for that. And so I was just kind of researching how much time these guys actually did in prison. Because, you know, like I said, on the Mississippi side of things, it was pretty much a joke. Yeah. So I talked to the Bureau of Prisons. To actually, I was trying to find his actual time as opposed to what his sentence was. And so the, uh, the archivist told me it was, he was in there, you know, pulled the file and was reading it to me and said he was in there for three and a half years. And I said, now I understand he left here and, you know, went and served. What I've heard was he had been put into the witness protection program and that's why I couldn't, federal, you know, federal witness protection program. Yeah. And that's why I couldn't find any record of him doing his life sentence mm. in Mississippi. And because that's kind of what I've been told. And so I asked her about it. And I understand that you left prison and went to the witness protection program. Though, and, the, and the archivist said, well, that's impossible. So what are you talking about? So there was no witness protection program back then. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and so, so I, I didn't know if he was alive, dead, where he was. And so this is relatively early days of the internet, but I knew there's a website that I could go on and just type his name and take my chances. Mm -hmm. It didn't have to have the city or state. And so I typed it and up it popped. Billy Roy Pitts had his address, Denham Springs, Louisiana, had his telephone number. So I called him. First 20 minutes of the conversation went like this. How'd you find me? How'd you find me? I'm like, it's on the internet. Internet, I got a list and telephone number. I was like, well, you have to take it up with them, I guess. <laughs> the result of my story, uh, that, that he had never served the day of his life sentence, uh, Mississippi authorities issued a warrant for his arrest. So he ran. <laughs> uh. And while he was on the run, he sent me this audio cassette. And when I got it, I played it. This is how it began. Jerry, honest thought, I'll let you know. You've ruined my life. <laughs> but I promise if I talk to anybody, I talk to you. So here's this tape. And on this tape, he proceeds to tell me all about his involvement 
killing Vernon Damer, all those involved in all the clan violence. So shortly after this, he turned himself into authorities, and this now leads to the arrest of Sam Bowers. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the sequence. So that was in May of 1998. Is, uh, is Pitts the one who told uh, some of the family members that he had uh, prayed for them every day uh, and had yeah. hoped to have an opportunity to uh, make amends with them or something. Yeah, I was standing line. there. Yeah, well, I was, you know, after Bowers was convicted, um, this was a hearing that took place sometime after that. Bowers was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in the Damon case. And after that, sometime later, there was a hearing, and Billy Roe Pitts testified in the hearing. When he, walked, when he got done testifying, he walked to the back of the courtroom, and he ran into Vernon Damer's widow, Ellie Damer, mm. just a wonderful woman. And and she was there with her, her two children, Betty and Betty and um, Dennis. And and Billy Rockets walked up to her and and apologized for killing her husband mm. and asked her to forgive him. And she forgave him. That's amazing. And she began to cry. And he began to cry. And and the children began to cry. <laughs> and if I'm being real honest, I began to cry. <laughs> um, it, it was an incredible moment, an incredible moment. I, and I think that's the other thing I loved about being able to do this book. Is there's, I feel like I've been kind of a witness to history mm-hmm. and uh, in these important moments. And I, I wanted them recorded for that sake, you know, to be able, so everybody can know that, you know, not everyone's there, but I'm trying to hopefully recreate it in such a way people feel they're there. You're listening to Uncommentary. This is uh, Marty during my interview with Jerry Mitchell. We'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. 
Jerry, one of the stories, uh, you being in Mississippi all this time and the stories that I was most familiar with being centered in Mississippi, uh, I was curious to see uh, in the contents, the names of Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, uh, who were killed in the 16th Street church bombing in Birmingham. Uh, yeah. That threw me a little bit because I didn't, <laughs> I really didn't know you had anything to do with, uh, with that story at all. Uh, how did you get involved in that and what did you find out? Well, um, after Sam Bowers was convicted in 1998, um, my editors and I decided, well, let's just look at, you know, what other cases are being examined right now? Regardless of, you know, we didn't limit ourselves to Mississippi. We, we were just curious, you know, nationwide, what other cases are out there, um, et cetera. And so one of them, was the Birmingham church bombing that killed the four little girls. Um, which obviously I, I was aware of. I certainly didn't know many details about it, but I was aware of the, the incident. Um, you know, the, the kill, the horrible killings. And so mm-hmm. long story short, I, I, I ended up, and it was, I knew the feds were looking at it in that case, not the state authorities, but the feds. And so I ended up reaching out to uh, the guy that was U.S. attorney at the time, who was Doug Jones. And so mm-hmm. I ended up driving over to Alabama. And I did a, my piece was it wasn't an in-depth profile of Doug, but I talked, you know, I kind of told about him and and uh, the fact that he was looking at the case. And the thing that was fascinating about it is Doug was in law school when there was a previous trial in 77 where uh, Bob Shambliss, who, by the way, his nickname was Dynamite Bob, by the way, uh, Shambliss <laughs> uh, was convicted uh, in, in uh, 1977 of murder. And so Doug actually attended that trial. He had actually been a law student. He skipped classes, like skipped law school classes to watch that lunch that trial wow. and saw the closing arguments of Bill Baxley. And so here he was all these years later, suddenly this is his case. And so it became a passion of his and many others in that office. There are so many people that were involved in that case and did a great job. And the, and the FBI agents, Bill Fleming and Ben Heron worked very hard on that case as well. And all the prosecution team is a huge prosecution team. So anyway, I, I I wrote about it, um, and just did you know just kind of wrote that story. Within the context of that story, I ended up talking to Bobby Sherry, who's one of the last living suspects in that case. And then you know months later, I get like an email from his wife that says Bobby wants to talk to you, and I'm like, okay, great. So he, he, um, he lived in East Texas, um, and not too far from where I grew up, which is in the schizophrenic town of Texarkana. So I knew where it was. He lived near Tyler. And so I drove over, met him and his wife, took him out for barbecue because, well, I guess that's what you take Klansman out for. I'm not really sure, but anyway, we, we went out, we had barbecue, we ate. And he's like, I didn't have anything to do with that church bombing. 
I left that sign shop at a quarter to ten because I had to get home and watch wrestling. Uh, you know. Yeah. What an alibi. And he pulls this, you know, paper, like official-looking paper out of this woman whose name was uh, Forrest Thomas. And, and, it's, and she said, yes, I remember. It was like sworn statement after David and said, yes, I remember that now. Well, we're all sitting around watching wrestling. So... Um, fast, fast forward, I, I, I talked to our librarian, Susan Garcia, and I said, yeah, this isn't what you do as a journalist. You check things out. You don't assume anything anybody tells you is true. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Susan and I just said, you know, check with the Birmingham News and see what was on TV, if you don't mind. Because, you know, when I was a kid, they would have the entire TV schedule. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, in a very small box in the newspaper, and I recall that. And and so I, from my childhood, and so she checked and came back and said there there was no wrestling. Hadn't been wrestling on for years. It turned out. So um, hmm. it was an alibi concocted later, and um, and stuck by. Him. So um, so I did that story. Uh, he got arrested, um, along with, uh, along with Thomas Blanton, who's also charged in that. And they were both convicted and, and both given, um, four life sentences, one for each one of those girls. Mm-hmm. So you've, uh, you spent a lot of time interviewing a lot of Klansmen. You interviewed, I did. uh, people who you suspected had killed people. Yes. Um, you went to Signal Mountain, Tennessee and, uh, I interviewed, did. Uh, Byron Dela Beckwith. Did. did you ever feel like? Did you ever feel like you were in danger? I mean, did you, was your wife like taking out an extra insurance policy every other week on you? I mean, how, how did that? How did all that make you feel? And how did it make her feel? Uh, well, she was not happy about it. Uh, she was. <laughs> I think that would be accurate. In fact, when she was, it was it was like the worst of circumstances because. She was, when I went to go interview Byron Yellow Beckwith, she was, what, eight and a half months pregnant? Is that what it was? I figured it out. But it, yeah, something wow. like that. She was eight months pregnant. Yeah, because Sam was born that. So she was eight months pregnant. And uh, here I am going out the door and to go interview Byron Yellow Beckwith, and she's worried he'll kill me. And and literally, she said to me, I'm not, I'm not making this up. If you go, I'll never forgive you. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, wow. You know, what do you do with those words? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but think of Medgar Evers. And, and uh, mm-hmm. I know that, you know, he and Merle Evers haven't talked to Merle Evers many times about it, you know, he obviously did very dangerous things and, and obviously she didn't want him going, but she eventually agreed. And I think that's kind of eventually what worked out between Karen and I, I mean, that was kind of what happened, but it was, it, it was still scary. It, I mean, you know, when you have a Klansman tell you, he has pictures of you and knows what you look like. And, and that, that part didn't scare me so much and describe me accurately in his physical description. Uh, so I knew, and this is pre-internet days, so um, a little mm-hmm. harder to get a photo of, of you. Uh, so he like described me t- 
totally physically, not just my, you know, uh, the fact I had red hair, but, you know, like that I was slim and, you know, different other things like that. It made obviously you'd seen a photo right. of me. Um, we have pictures and we know where you live. And when, when it, that part of it was mm-hmm. really the, probably the most unsettling, you know, because I, I guess as a person of faith, um, not to be fatalistic, but as a person of faith, you know, I just believe that someone were to kill me, I just get to go home sooner. You know, I, I, that's what I believe. And, and so I wasn't really concerned about me, but I certainly was concerned about my family. I I didn't want them harmed. So we, I I did end up calling the FBI. In fact, I I called them a couple of different times. So when I, I picked up your book and I opened it up to uh, your dedication page and mm-hmm. um, it says to the one who loves justice. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I immediately knew who you were talking about. I recognized the reference from the old Testament. Um, but I did not know at, at the time until I read that, I, I did not know that you were a believer. Yeah. Um, so do you, do you feel like your, uh, your career, did it? Let me say it this way. Let me ask it this way: uh, Did you start off in in reporting and journalism uh, as what you felt like was a calling, and has at any time you have begun to feel like uh, this is just why God put me on this earth? Yes, I, I I felt that way. I mean, I don't know that I recognized it initially, you know, um, but I think you know I. I I mean, this sounds odd, but I'll, I'll say it. I, mm-hmm. I think that if you look at, you know, the odds, what are the odds that all these cases get, you know, happen? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and against all odds. Uh, and so I just think, you know, God used me in his way because God loves justice. And, and I know that. Yeah. And, and once I kind of really, that really soaked in with me, I remember uh, really diving back into Scripture after some of this had happened and really reading all of what he had to say about justice. And it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, it's really enlightening. And, it, of course, it's about more than just what happens in a courtroom. Justice is about how, yeah. we, how we treat each other, how we treat the least of these. Yeah. And so um, once I began to realize that, that's when it really soaked in. I didn't have to wonder whether God wanted this or not. You know, I knew he wanted mm-hmm. it. Yeah, so. and, and that he would, do, um, he would do things to make it happen. That's, I, I feel strongly about that. But, I mean, there are odds of being so, million, million to one or, 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 or more against these cases, even, each one individually being reopened and oh yeah uh and a conviction resulting after 25 30 and then and then with that great kill in 41 years that is amazing so i want to shift uh shift gears just a bit because um you're featured at least uh you're featured by name in ghosts of mississippi there's a <laughs> uh, there's a there's a person who plays you in that movie That's right that, and honestly, that that may have been the first time I ever heard your name. But I also read a a trilogy, uh, the Natchez Burning Trilogy by Greg Isles. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Um, yep. And it seems like there was a character in that book who was modeled on you. 
a well, reporter who yeah, it's based on Stanley yeah. Nelson, a buddy of mine who's a reporter in Louisiana okay. who's been looking at cases over there. But yeah, he's uh, Stanley's been doing the same kind of stuff I've been doing. He's been digging into cases over in Louisiana and then in Mississippi as well. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. It must be fascinating to just like show up in in pop culture in these different yeah. places. Well, Greg mentions uh, me in his book, which is kind of him. You know, you kind of make a reference. I think he, if I recall correctly, he makes a reference to me and then and then introduces, you know, the Stanley Nelson character. You know, I can't remember the name yeah. of the character, but it's, it's Stanley, essentially. Or, you know, it's not Stanley himself, but it's, you know, Greg's character representing Stanley, what, what Stanley did. So you are now the, uh, the head of a different kind of an organization. Talk for just a couple of minutes about that. And, uh, and then we'll wrap. Yeah, they, we started, uh, we opened the doors in January of last year. We started the Mississippi center for investigative reporting because newsrooms across the country and especially Mississippi, are vanishing and investigative reporting is the first thing to go. I mean, you you used to have investigative teams even uh, in newspapers Mm -hmm. and and TV stations. They're gone. They're, They're just gone for the most part. And so our idea, our dream is to continue to do that kind of investigative reporting that makes a difference. To, you know, to shine a light into the darkness because uh, mm-hmm. these newsrooms can't, can't, they can't afford it. They aren't doing it. They aren't able to do it. And so what we want to be to do is to provide that, those investigative stories, that content to them free of charge. And so we're a, um, not just a content creator, but a content distributor. And so our stories run literally in almost every major newspaper in Mississippi. Uh, they've, they've run on the front page of USA Today. They've run in The Guardian in London. They've run all over. I mean, some of our stuff has run all over the world. Um, and and um, we spent this past year investigating prisons, kind of warning state officials about what was going to happen. I mean, the one prison we described as a ticking time bomb and talked about the problem of gang control. And a gang war broke out wow. in that very prison that we wrote about and, 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 and then spread to another prison, which I also wrote about, about the horrible conditions mm-hmm. there. And by the end of it, I guess there were, what, eight or nine dead or something like that. And, um, and within and, and parchment itself, uh, the prison there, there have been... 16 violent deaths since July. Wow. Or since, or since April. So within nine months, within nine months, there have been 16 violent deaths there. So it's, it's, it's almost third world like, uh, and, and I just view that as part of our mission. I mean, you know, we're, um, exposing what's really going on and, and prisons are hard to report about. You have to really work hard in a long time to develop sources who begin to, and work and and provide you information well there's no doubt that uh y'all's work is needed your book is race against time a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era 
available hopefully today uh, at Amazon and wherever you buy books or yeah. uh, Hearts and Minds Books, my sponsor. You can uh, email them and uh, get it from them as well. Um, you're on Twitter, but I don't remember the, your bio. Your... An audio book. An oh, audio book. Do, I might mention the audio books available as well. Yeah. Do, are you reading it? I do. I actually read the audio book. I awesome. do all the clan voices. So it's, <laughs> I had great fun doing it. <laughs> that is awesome. So you're on Twitter, but I forget your handle. Uh, Jay Mitchell News is my Twitter and my uh, Instagram handle. Awesome. At Jay Mitchell News. And Facebook, I'm. And Facebook, I'm Jerry Mitchell Reporter. Awesome. Jerry Mitchell, the man, the legend, but not a myth. You're the real deal, man. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on Uncommentary. Thanks, Barney. Appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use. Uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.